I'm Kendra Rogers, and this is Paper Napkin. I am so glad you're here. The world felt distant and connection felt hard. So I reached out to the most interesting people I know for a conversation about how we can build stronger connections and more meaningful relationships. Grab a pen, a piece of paper, or a paper napkin and get ready to connect. Marielle Ronaday is an American expat in London who has lived and worked across the globe for the past eight years. She's a proud but also tired mom of two tiny humans, Nina, who is four, and Naeem, who is one and a half. When she's not juggling parenting and a pandemic with her husband, Rajiv, she's a full-time working mom and part-time counseling student with the Gestalt Center in London. In my eyes, Marielle is basically superwoman. She manages to make juggling two kiddos, a full-time job and part-time studies and all the other wondrous things she's up to and makes it all look effortless somehow. Marielle and I met thanks to the dinner party, which is a grief group for people in their 20s and 30s who have lost a close family member or friend. Marielle was the host for my table, and I was moved and honestly in absolute awe of the way she navigated the complex and sometimes painful conversations that come along with grief. She is unafraid to go deep, supportive beyond measure, the calm in the storm, even when there are storms within her own life, and a truly impactful connector. Marielle, welcome to Paper Napkin. I am so happy that you're here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. And I'm so touched with what you just shared. That that makes me feel really happy. It's all truth. I really admire you. So the very first question is about what you do and why you do it. We touched a little bit on who you are, but I'd love to hear it straight from you. I feel like I wear a lot of hats, to be honest. For sure, my number one hat is a parent to my kids. And my daughter will be four next month. My son is one and a half, Naeem. Being a parent to them is my role first and foremost. But to be honest, I don't know that it's my most important role. I think that being a partner to my husband and working on our relationship and our marriage, we have been together since we were 18 years old. So for nearly 15 years and married for seven of those and sustaining that relationship in that marriage is really hard particularly in a pandemic and also in a pandemic when you're parenting. And then I also count my role as a friend as something that's really important to me, particularly being an expat and living away from our family and our friends for so long. But nurturing those relationships are really important to me. So I almost see all three of those as my equal role. And then apart from that, I do work. I have bills to pay. So I work for a multinational corporation and have been with them for over 10 years. I started more in the communications space in the U.S. and transferred with them to Singapore and covered the emerging markets in Southeast Asia and have been with them here in London for three years. And I love that job. I love that company. I love the way that... The people support you through the ups and downs, through the loss of my dad and his illness. So that's part of the reason why I've stayed at the company I have for so long. And then the the last activity that I've been really focused on is this part-time counseling course with the Gestalt Center in London. That was born out of my work with the dinner party and seeing what value it is to create space for people where they can open themselves up and uncover their wounds in a way that's safe and supportive for them. I loved being able to do that through the dinner party, being a host, meeting wonderful people like you, where we got to share this mutual humanity that we have, which is unfortunately having to face losing the people that we love in our lives. And you and I lost people that we love way too soon. And to be able to share that with each other was wonderful. So that really led me to counseling and thinking, how can I build skills that I can use in my everyday, I can use in my work, I can use with my kids. And to be honest, the greatest connection that I've gotten out of my training actually isn't with people around me. That's been a bonus, but it's actually more with myself and kind of uncovering my story. The piece around self-connection, I think is really interesting. Have you always been connected to yourself? You seem like a very introspective, self-aware person. Has that always been the case? 
I don't think so. (laughs) I would actually say this has been a journey that I've taken over the last year. And it really started with my husband and I, Rajiv, going through couples counseling. After our second child, Naeem, was born, when he was about three or four months old, we just found that we were not on the same page. We'd been together for exactly 14 years at that point. And it just felt like our relationship was strained. We weren't communicating with each other. And we looked at ourselves and said, is this what we want? Do we want having two kids to start to be this downfall of our relationship and to raise our kids because we will, and we do that lovingly. And it's the most important thing that we do together, do that. And then 18 years from now, look at each other and be like, what the hell just happened to us? Where did we go? Where did we go as a couple? So it was Rajiv who said, why don't we go into counseling? And what was funny is that I had already signed up to be in the counseling course with the Gestalt Center, but I was resistant to the idea because there is such a shame and stigma around it. Even me, someone who was interested in understanding counseling and starting the training program, I was really resistant to the idea because I thought, have things really gotten that bad, like to the point where we need to see a counselor? And I look back thinking how naive and just silly of a notion that is to think that things have to get bad to see a counselor, like a counselor and therapy and those types of spaces are there for you to create a foundation so that you're stronger as individuals and as people. And so Rajiv and I went on that journey. And to be honest, when we started, we're like, well, we've been together for seven years. We just need a tune up. Like the counselor is going to give us a couple of tools on how to communicate with each other. And it's going to be gravy after that. And what we found actually unsurprisingly, is that we had to uncover a lot of our past, having been together since we were 18, to understand how to rebuild back our foundation as a couple. And I thought a lot of it would be communication to each other. And that was certainly an element of that. But actually, in our couples counseling, what we found was building self-awareness of you as an individual is what helps you better communicate with the people around you. And so, so much of our couples counseling was actually about me pausing and saying, what's going on for me right now? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? Can I be honest with myself about what I'm feeling? And then finally taking that truth and being able to share that with Rajiv. And he had to do the same for himself. And so that was really when I started looking a lot more inward at myself and being able to say out loud the stories that I told myself. And I think that was really the power of our couples counseling. It gave me and Rajiv an amazing foundation to enter in a pandemic that we didn't know was coming and be able to tackle that as parents and as partners. Then Rajiv and I were in counseling for about a year, but about three months into our couples counseling, I started my counseling program. And alongside my counseling program, I had to start my own personal therapy. And starting that personal therapy, I just continued to build upon that self-awareness, that self-reflection, and to be able to be more honest again with myself so that I could show up more honestly into the world. I think I threw our dinner party. That's probably one of the more vulnerable spaces that I've ever been in. I certainly brought a lot of honesty there, but you know, the safety of that space, right? It was really easy to do that in a place where I knew that people around me could understand, not to say that it wasn't scary or it doesn't take a lot of courage because I know the people who show up at that space do bring that with them. But I think over the course of our couples counseling and my personal therapy, I've just been able to build on that a lot. But it it probably started with the dinner party and me finding so much strength and power and being able to share my story there that I wanted to share it more outside that world. This idea of connecting with yourself and connecting with others through the honesty and vulnerability that you've found thanks to therapy and thanks to really getting into the dirt with yourself. I really found it interesting what you said, the have things gotten this bad and the idea that we have to pull ourselves back from that, that even among more open-minded people, there's still a tendency to think of therapy as a thing that you need when you're injured. This idea, I'm fine, so I don't need therapy. And it's so interesting that 
when you were given the space of the dinner party, which offers this open space to really share in a way that is very unique and quite challenging to find in other spaces, actually, other than perhaps therapy, to your point, that you were able to connect better with yourself and with your husband and with the larger group as well. That stigma is really funny about therapy and that being the last resort, when in fact, what I've learned from, again, our couples counseling, which I think every couple married or not should be going through couples counseling at some point, you will thank yourself later. And through my own personal therapy is that it's not about things getting so bad. It's that things don't have to be this hard. Like I see that so much, for example, with some of my friends who are working mothers and how much we have accepted life as struggle And I think therapy, it's not a silver bullet. It's not the golden ticket out, but my God, does it make it so much easier. And being able to accept that, being able to accept that help, it's that this is hard, but there are ways to make this easier. That's how I see therapy. And 2020 certainly showed me that, that I needed a place to be able to go and and to talk about what was going on in my life. There was the pandemic, which we were all experiencing in different ways, but also life was going on alongside it, right? And so no time in my life did I need an outlet more than I did this past year. And that was really helpful. And again, that outlet was more about connecting with myself as opposed to connecting with others. It allowed me to connect better with others because I could connect with myself. I thought of a quote that you will recognize because you mentioned that it is a favorite book of yours, but we can do hard things. Yeah. You've done a lot of hard things, right? And you've come through on the other side, but with the knowledge that there's more tough in your future, but maybe more tools in your toolbox. A hundred percent. I was just looking through the Glennon book today. I picked up that book last spring in the midst of some really tough things going on with my life and my family. And that book was a guide for me. And honestly, the guide was put yourself first, because when you put yourself first, when you take care of yourself, you can better take care of the people around you. And I needed to hear that because as a mother, as a daughter, as a sister, as a woman, I've been told, I've been shown that sacrifice is how you show love. And I realize in kind of unpacking my own shit and my own history and examining the role and the example that I want to set for both of my kids, that sacrifice is, is not how you show love. That's, that's not it. And you can do hard things. I say that to my daughter all the time. She's able to climb a playground set in the park or something. And I say, look at you, you can do hard things because There's a tendency as parents where we want life to be easy for our kids. And God, wouldn't you love that to be the case? But you can't. And so the best thing that you can do is prepare them and show them that they can do hard things because they are going to face hard things. I want to pull a thread there because we can do hard things in some level connects to what you said earlier. We have accepted life as struggle. And that really resonated with me. And we can do hard things feels like it's actually driving along the same road, but with a totally different vehicle. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on those two ideas, this idea of struggle versus this idea of hard things. And perhaps it's the reframing of that. I do think that anxiety as a lifestyle is what so many of us live today. Young professionals, millennials in particular, right? We love being able to say, I work 16 hours today. It's a a stamp of achievement or approval or status. And then with age and wisdom, you realize that life isn't about that. So there's a little bit of, of what I'm pushing back on, which is the anxiety as a lifestyle. But I also think even in knowing that life is struggle, you're never gonna be able to take away the struggle but you can make it easier. What you said was that we have accepted life as a struggle, but it's okay to accept help. And I think maybe the correlation that I'm seeing in my mind is that Glennon speaks 
about how we can do hard things. And I think mm-hmm. back to the idea of it can be a struggle or it can be something that you do together or that you create something better out of as opposed to allowing it to consume your life, right? Like yeah. the, you can do hard things and the things don't have to be this hard. I think that's exactly it. You, you hit the nail right on the head. We can do hard things, but these don't have to be that hard. And to your point, being able to ask for help is really important. And I, I found that for myself. There was a time in my life when, again, we talked about status symbols and being able to be self-sufficient, independent, get your own shit done, not have to trouble anybody else, being seen as the person that has everything together. I took pride in that for myself. And what I realized is that was a really hard place to be, to have to hold myself up in that way all the time, to feel like I had to fit that expectation. Not that anyone put that on me. I put that on myself and being able to shatter that for myself. And in the times when I got really low, being able to reach out to friends. I have a beautiful friend who actually is the one that introduced me to the dinner party. And I remember calling her on a really low day and her just saying to me, the elephant will take its foot off of your chest. They always take the foot off the chest. It feels so low right now and so heavy and you feel like you can't get up, but you will. And I think that there was probably a time in my life where I wouldn't have even shared these low moments with friends, but your friends are who pick you back up, right? They're the ones that throw you the lifeline. And in the beginning, when I talked a little bit about myself, it's why when I think about my three pillars of life, it's my husband, my kids, and my friends. Like that's who holds me up and they all do it in equal ways. And over the last year, I've certainly had to rely on those people and that's made things a lot less hard. There's so much around this idea of connection and the way that you connect to the people around you and you feel like those people are pillars to you. And I think you are probably a pillar to them as well. I spoke about the idea that you are a superwoman. And I think that even that term, it does evoke this idea of everything is perfect on the outside. Mm-hmm. And I, you are honest and you are vulnerable. And when I first met you, there was that honesty and vulnerability. I walked away going, that woman is superwoman. The more that I see of you, the more that I believe that to be the case. I think that has to do with the way that you connect and the way that you communicate what you are going through while also holding space for other people and what they need. And the base question is, how do you connect? But it's actually in this instance, the question that I'm most interested in, because I think you are one of the best connectors that I know. I think I've found the people that I have the strongest connection with are those that I'm able to share my pain with. Because again, life is struggle, doesn't have to be that hard, but there's so much pain and darkness in life, things that we can't avoid. And right after my dad passed away, I kind of fell into myself and I never found an opportunity to talk about my grief or my pain. Those are probably the peak moments in my life where I said, have your shit together, make it look okay on the outside. I mean, when I gave my dad's eulogy, I was smiling from ear to ear and everyone was looking at me like, why are you crying? But it was just, it was like robotic in a way. I just put a smile on my face. And when for the first time I really started to examine my grief and my darkness in that moment, which was to actually finally talk about losing my dad and what that meant to me, was when I think I really started to find ways to better connect with people. I remember talking about childhood and talking about my life and even talking about my dad's death and them saying to me, wow your life seems so rosy. And that was a shock to me. What they meant actually was almost as though I was editing myself to talk about my pain, but to put a rosy picture over it. And that's again, where over the last 
nine to 12 months, I've come back to a place where I'm starting to peel that back and look at myself and my childhood and my history and my family and be able to accept those parts of myself and then share that with people around me. And because I've got such a stronger sense of myself, it's easier to share with other people. I don't feel the shame that's attached to some feelings that you hold about yourself because I've been able to step back and examine it. So I think it goes back to connecting with myself more, being able to understand these events and experiences and feelings in my life. And then being able to share that with other people, I think being able to share and connect with other people about those experience comes from that stronger sense of myself. Every time I'm vulnerable with someone, I share my story. There's so much fear into taking that leap. And then on the other side of it, I feel so much better. I feel a stronger sense of myself and even more powerful in a way, which is a kind of an odd way to describe it, but that's what I feel. And it encourages me to keep doing it. Opening myself up and sharing my own story have built such strong connection for me that I just keep wanting more. It's interesting that you mentioned that because actually that was my next question. Oftentimes deeper connection comes with opening up with vulnerability, but that can make people feel uncomfortable. It can seem intimidating or scary to sort of cross that chasm and open yourself and be vulnerable. I think we live in a society that has only recently started to really allow for that. And you touched on it already, but overcoming the discomfort that first time Is there anything that stands out that you did or that you were able to manifest? I'm trying to think back to that first time. And what I'm remembering actually is it was a colleague of mine who had just lost her father. And we we weren't very close. We worked with each other every once in a while. And I remember just sending her an email and we got the notice back and I asked around and it was her father had passed away. And so the first meeting that her and I had, maybe a couple months after her dad passed away, I just asked her, how are you doing? And that just opened up this conversation to her sharing her loss, me sharing my loss. I remember going through the timestamps and it's graphic detail of losing the one you love that night. And you you know those stories as much as I do, right? Like we remember every single detail, what time it was and this happened, what time it was and this happened. And her and I going through that and me being so struck at how similar our stories were. But I think what opened me up to that conversation was looking at someone in pain and saying, can I help them feel a little less lonely? Because I remember my grief being so lonely. I remember being 24 years old and losing someone that was the most important person to me in that time in my life and feeling so lonely. And then seeing someone else in their pain and saying, can I help just a little bit? Can I make this a little bit better, a little bit easier for them? I think, you know, that's also part of sharing my story is being able to let people know that they're not alone. So maybe the push for me was just of helping other people. And in turn, it also helped me too. It's always helpful to to talk out loud, to talk about your feelings, talk about your experiences. And so it kind of had a dual role, I guess both for me and for the people around me. At least I hope it would. You're very unafraid of depth. And I said that in the introduction, but I think that it is true. And I really admire that in you because while I flirt with the idea of deep water, I sometimes stay in the shallower shores. And I think part of that comes from a fear of being the mopey one or the one who is forever going through something. And I'm not that. And I rarely think that of other people, yet there's something conditioned into me that makes it challenging to be fully vulnerable. You've mentioned that you've had a journey. You've mentioned that the 
personal journey has aligned with your connections with other people. Have you ever felt that way about someone else? Have you ever felt that way about yourself or have you, are you so evolved that that's not, that doesn't cross your mind? And I should caveat that by saying that you never come across as that to me in any way, but that's just something that I think of when I'm sharing my own experiences. And I wondered if you'd experienced it as well. Definitely not that evolved. (laughs) I think it's a little bit about like, you don't want to be the sad girl, the one that's always sad, the one that people feel like they're walking eggshells around. And I've certainly felt that myself. There were times in my life where I don't want to be the messed up girl with the hard family history and everybody's looking at them thinking like, or I'm thinking everybody's looking at me thinking like, oh man, like she's fucked up, right? And again, through many months of therapy, what I realized is that's my own shame. That's a judgment I put on myself. I've talked about my childhood traumas with a lot of my friends in my life. And never has one person said to me like, oh, fuck, like this girl's messed up. I don't want to be friends with her anymore. If anything, everybody's response has been like, fuck, you're a survivor. Like you've gone through things that people shouldn't have ever had to go through and you've come out on the other side. And so it's slowly, but very quickly started to shatter that shame that I hold for myself and realizing that the people that I love, the people who it matters to for me, all of them have embraced me in all of who I am. And that has been a really important lesson for myself and helped to shatter that shame that I hold for myself. I love this idea of shattering the shame that comes with sharing or that holds you back from sharing. Within the podcast, people won't be able to see me, but I was like a bobblehead there just (laughs) nodding incessantly because that is beautiful advice to many people. And I think the fear of depth and the fear of sharing the tough stuff is what keeps us from creating the most meaningful of connections. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about acceptance and belonging and how I feel that most. And to be honest, I feel it most not when I've got similarities with someone. We like the same movies and the same books and we're from the same place. I feel acceptance and belonging most when they accept me for my differences. And we're all different, right? We all have different stories. You and I have both lost a parent, but our grief stories are very different as well. So being able to share the complexity and the depth of my story is almost also a way for me to say, this is who I am, to be in my life, to be my friend, to be someone that can rely on me and my friendship. And to know that that will be reciprocated between the two of us, that journey for me is being able to say like, this is all of me. I don't want to hide parts of myself. If you're in my life, you've got to accept me for me and all my lovely baggage that I carry with me and know that I want to do the same for you too. I think about this a lot with my kids in particular. We talk a lot about wanting our kids to be happy that's what parents want is your kids to be happy. But more than anything, what I want for my kids is for them to be able to be exactly who they want to be. And if exactly who they want to be is someone who isn't happy all the time, that's okay. Because I think that's the struggle there is is the expectation of what we think people hold of us and who we actually want to be. And when there's that tension, that's what makes it so hard. When you can let go of those expectations of, I have to be happy all the time, it's an easier place to live. You you feel like you stop swimming against the current, right? Against the tide. My children have all these wonderfully wise children's books. And there's one called Grumpy Monkey. It's a wonderful book. It's the tale of a chimpanzee who wakes up and he's just not feeling it. He's having a bad day. 
and all of his friends, the gorilla and the snake and the alligator and everyone around him keep saying, why are you so grumpy? And at the end of the book, he just finally says out loud to himself, like, I'm grumpy. It's a great day to be grumpy. And it just makes his life so much easier. And it's such a simple book, but I love that story that it tells kids is that you don't have to deny yourself those feelings. Even if you think it's going to be harder for the people around you, you don't have to be happy all the time. And that's all I want for my kids. I want my kids to feel exactly how they want to feel in that moment and to know that we will accept them for every feeling that they bring to us. Even the ones that yell and kick and scream at you, we still love them when they do. That idea of acceptance and belonging starts at a really young age and something I've been thinking about a lot. Acknowledging your emotions and feeling accepted in those emotions is such a beautiful thing to be passing on to your children. And I think is such a beautiful gift to give to yourself and to and to those around you the acceptance that you give and the acknowledgement that things aren't always rosy to use your earlier work <laughs> that complexity doesn't make you wrong or bad or unworthy unworthy that's exactly the word that came to mind for me as well it doesn't make you unworthy. And if it does to certain people, those aren't people you need in your life. So acknowledging your emotions and, and being accepted in those emotions, is that what meaningful connection looks like? What else would you say meaningful connection looks like? Acknowledging your emotions, being accepted in all those emotions. I think being in spaces where you can share yourself freely without judgment. I look at so many of my most important friendships and it's those places where I don't feel like they're gonna judge me for every dark and twisty thought I have or any hard experiences I've had because it allows you to be exactly who you wanna be. And I think that's what makes meaningful connection is being able to meet people in all of their fullness. That's beautiful. Meet people in all of their fullness. Connection feels like it's evolving. What do you think connection will look like in five years time? It's almost hard to answer questions about the future in the midst of this pandemic when we're like, whoa, where did this come from? One of the things that I have loved about the pandemic. Can you say that you've loved things about a pandemic? But one of the things that has been a silver lining has been connecting with friends who don't live close to us and even ones who do. Rajiv and I went to the same university. We've been together since we were 18 years old. All of his friends are my friends. All of my friends are his friends. There's very little delineation. And we've got this really close group of friends from university that we all love, we're all really close. We all live in different cities, LA, Las Vegas, Chicago, Southern California, London. And for some reason it took a pandemic to bring us all together and do monthly game nights, which we absolutely love. And I know everyone has this exact same story, but I think the pandemic has showed us how important that connection is and being able to nurture and foster those connections and realizing that you can create that connection even when you're not physically together. So I've loved getting together with those old friends. It's been really fun. And I hope that we keep that, that once we can go out into the world that we don't lose that ability to maintain that regular connection with people who you're not near. Media is a scary thing and one that I don't like to look at as a parent. I just hope that it goes away by the time my children know how to use an iPhone or iPad of, of their own. But I'm interested to see how that changes connection. There's so many good things about social and there's also so much negativity around it too. I do think we're at a really interesting moment in society, history, what have you, where vulnerability is such an asset. I hope that continues. I hope that it is extended to people who don't usually 
share their vulnerabilities, particularly men. I've watched Rajiv, particularly through our couples counseling journey, really open up more about his feelings. Our connection as a couple has maybe never been as strong as it is today. And it's because I think he's starting to connect with himself and in turn connect with me. So I hope that more men, and I'm making a generalization there, but I hope that more men are able to do that more. Rajiv and I have talked about it. His example is an example that will be set for both of our kids, but in particular, our son Naeem, to be able to see a father who talks about what's going on with him internally and talks about his feelings. I guess that's less of what I think and more of what I hope connection will look like. I hope that vulnerability is a lot more universal. Excellent points there. And there are two things I want to touch on. Firstly, coming back to earlier in our conversation, when we spoke about being able to feel emotions other than happiness, being able to not pretend like everything is okay. I think Rajiv being able to show that to your children and you being able to show that to your children is really beautiful. And I think when we look five years in the future, we look at a generation that has come to terms with, to a certain extent, those feelings of I think I was raised in a way that means that I have to be happy all the time, that I have to make everything seem perfect on the outside. And I said it earlier, but I really do think that the best gift that you are giving your children and you are giving your children many gifts, but the the space to be not okay and to explore that is something that I think you too as parents will look back on and be grateful that you did because I I think looking forward to the future, it will mean more well-adjusted children. And I hope not just for your children, but for children generally coming out of this new wave of Brene and Glenn and, and getting into the gritty and allowing space for it and not making everything always be the shiny sparkly bits. There's been a lot of discussion through the pandemic about children's mental health, the least of which is if kids aren't in school, what kind of effect does that have on their mental health? And a lot of discussion is around, well, kids are so resilient. I do think kids are resilient in the moment, but I also think we have a lot of ill-adjusted adults who need some help, myself included, And that's because kids are not as resilient as we give them credit for. Kids are able to hide it. They're able to move on quickly. But I can tell you from my own experience, we carry that shit with us up until the point at which you meet your first therapist and then you put it on them. And I think what I want for my kids is a foundation where they don't feel like they need to hold all of their feelings inside anymore that it doesn't have to be such a lonely experience that they can share those feelings and that they will still be fully accepted in those feelings, regardless of what they are. Because I think if you give your kids the tools to talk about feelings, that's so important for them. Just being able to talk about that. I think that's really important. And maybe that's one of the changes that we'll see. Rajiv and I are not unique in our approach to parenting. We see that with all of our friends today. I think that this is kind of the modern wave of parenting is to be able to give your kids the space for all of their feelings, whatever that may be. And so hopefully that means that we have a generation of boys and girls who are able to do that and who have a much stronger foundation of mental health because their parents have helped them develop that. We're not perfect by any means, trust me. You could ask our kid, but we're trying our hardest. (laughs) I I believe it. You mentioned resilience and I hate the word resilient. I think it happened after I lost my mom and everyone said, you're so resilient and you're so strong. And those words really frustrated me because it felt like they left no room for anything other than being resilient and strong. 
And I think sometimes people use them to praise people who are keeping it all inside or who aren't sharing the gritty bits. And I just, I hate that word, honestly. (laughs) I'm starting to dislike it quite a lot myself. I understand the intention. The intention is to be able to say, wow, what you're going through is unimaginable. And I don't know how you're sustaining yourself, but you are, and you seem so resilient. And at least this is what it does for me. And again, this goes back to my expectations that I put on myself. Once someone calls me resilient, I think to myself, I can never fall apart in front of them because then they won't think I'm resilient anymore. And that's all my own baggage of what that does for me internally. But I do think it puts an expectation on people that being able to show, I guess, our definition of strength is not falling apart. And I just don't think that that's the case. Resilience is such an interesting word in that it is sort of the opposite of falling apart. It is the keeping it all together. And I had a job and it was the worst job. And the CEO said, the key characteristic that we want to hire in people is resilience. And looking back on it, what a red flag. But what's interesting about saying that is you're saying, I want people who can go through hell and not show it. And I think we talk about children and the fact that they're resilient. And when you were explaining your own experience of being a child and and being resilient, but you don't know how resilient you're, you're being versus how much trauma you're just pushing quite deep. And it just feels like we can give our children more than saying, oh, well, they'll bounce back. 100%. I could not have said it better. I think we take kids for granted. We think because something can happen to them and a minute later they can be playing with their dolls that that's resilience. It's, it's not. Mm-hmm. Kids carry trauma with them. I, for one, know that in my own experience and carry trauma with them that they couldn't even say out loud as children, but they still carry it. It's still there. I don't like the word either. I'm coming to dislike it more and more as I think about it. And I'm trying to think of if it's not resilience, then what's a better word? Yeah. What's the replacement? I've been wondering that too, because I still lean on resilience sometimes because it's still, even though I hated it when I was going through it, I can't find the word that feels right. Gracious is the word that comes to mind or graceful Mm. in the face of terrible things. I think having grace despite that is in my mind, a more lofty goal than being resilient, perhaps. What I admire in someone who's struggling is is the ability to be authentic in that struggle, Mm. to be able to talk about that struggle. And I think the act of being able to talk about what you're going through, your experiences, your feelings, helps you come back out of whatever, wherever you are, whether that's a hole or stuck on the side of the road, whatever, wherever you are, to me, being able to talk about that and to be authentic in what you're experiencing. That's what I admire. I think that the bouncing back comes from being able to share your experience, not being able to just push it down and put a smile on your face. I did that for years and that did not serve me well. Authenticity in the struggle. I love that. You've offered so much advice, Miriam, and I really am so grateful for everything that you've, you've shared. It feels like there are a million actionable insights that have come from this conversation. What is one piece of advice that you often pass on to others other than go to therapy, but go (laughs) go to therapy, let your kids cry. This is something that has really helped me over the last nine to 12 months come more into that sense of myself and what's going on with me. I think a lot about the mind-body connection, and that is kind of at the heart of Gestalt therapy. It looks at what's going on with individuals, both cognitively, what is their body feeling? What is the field around them? What's the context of their life? It's a very holistic therapy. 
But one thing that I've learned most from Gestalt is that mind-body connection. And so often when something is coming up for me, I pause for a moment and try to feel where that is. Like, is it in my gut? Is it in my back? Is it in my throat? Is it in my chest? What's happening to me? Is my heart beating really fast? Are my hands shaking? And as I focus more on my body and using my body as a tool for what's going on for me emotionally, I found that I'm starting into such a better place for myself. And I'm actually listening to my body and what's going on when I'm in anxious situations, when I'm in stressful situations, when Rajiv and I are in the middle of the fight and I'm like, okay, I feel angry, but where do do I feel that anger? Being able to listen to my body has been super helpful for me. And I think so often we don't do that. We jump right to our head and then our head just spats out words. And then we end up in a very difficult conversation where we didn't want to be that's filled with a lot more rage and a lot more emotion than if for just a moment, you just ask yourself what's going on with me and to the conversation before of what's going on with me what's the story I'm telling myself? I start with my body first. What is my body telling me first? And then I move to my head. And that's been really helpful for me. And I've shared that a lot with some of my friends as well. And it's kind of advice that I've passed along is something that that I do to ground myself, to understand what's going on with myself, to build my own self-awareness. And it's been a real savior for me over the last year and a half as I've unpacked a lot of things for myself. Being able to listen to my body has given me a new tool to better understand myself. I love that. Such really incredibly useful wisdom. And as you're saying, and it's so true that, that the way that you're feeling manifests in different parts of your body. And I think sometimes we treat the symptom, but not the cause. And it's worth acknowledging when those feelings come up or when that tightness or whatever that feeling is, allowing yourself to acknowledge it. Is it stress? Is it anger? Is it rage? Is it sadness? And I start with my body to say something's happening with me right now. Okay. What is it that's happening with me? I've been thinking a lot about the difference between stress and anxiety Stress for me is almost like a to-do list. It's something I have to do. And when I feel stress, I feel it in my hands. It's like this nervous energy of, okay, like go and get things done. Anxiety is something that I have to work through. And I keep that on my back. And I know that when my back starts to ache, it's because I'm carrying something with me that I need to work through. You walk through life carrying so many things with you. And sometimes the best thing to do is just set it down. Take the backpack off your back, take everything out, put them on the ground in front of you and just say, okay, this is what's going on for me right now. And again, in this world where there's anxiety as a lifestyle, the more you do, the more hours you work, the more you can juggle, the more valued and worthy you feel at least. I've come into a place where I don't want to have that feeling anymore. And so when I'm feeling stressed or anxious, sometimes I just sit down and it feels like I physically take a a bag off my back and I just set it down for a moment. And it's not that I don't pick it back up again because I have to, right? Those are responsibilities for myself. But being able to slow down and just set things down has been huge for me personally in terms of self-regulating and not feeling too overwhelmed, even in the midst of a pandemic and a mental health crisis for myself over the last months, just being able to set things down has been really self-regulating. That idea that you don't have to carry the weight all the time and you may have to pick it back up and carry on your journey, but you can put it down and rest and allow yourself that opportunity. And we, we wouldn't do it to our physical bodies. If our physical bodies were tired, we would sit down and rest, but we don't always give ourselves that grace when it comes to our emotional selves. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. 
This has been such a wonderful conversation. And I always feel like you and I could talk for hours, (laughs) but just one final question for you. In true paper napkin fashion, who should we connect with next and what makes them great? I've thought long and hard about this. And the person that comes to mind for me is one of my very good friends from university. Her name is Mickey Sawada. She's a concert pianist, is an amazing pianist. Me and Rajiv used to go to all of her recitals when we were in university. Her parents lived in Japan at the time, and so they weren't able to come to a lot of her recitals. So Rajiv and I are always there in the background cheering her on. And Mickey has played in a lot of really interesting venues, but one of her latest projects is something called Gather Here. She started in Alaska. It was the idea of how can music, and in particular classical music, bring community together. So she toured playing concerts in different venues. And she toured in a lot of very rural places, places where if you were a bit close-minded about things, you wouldn't think that classical music would be something that you'd see much there. But her idea was that music could bring community and bring connection together. So she did a tour in Alaska, another tour in West Virginia, again, very rural places of the U.S. And she's embarking on her third tour in Massachusetts. And I just love the idea about community and connection and classical music being the pillar of that. She's met a lot of really interesting people along the way. She's made these mini documentaries. And I think her hope is to do all 50 states at some point. And I thought she might be a really good person. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to connect with Mickey. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for this conversation. It really means the world to me to have you in my life and to get the chance to have these conversations with you and get the chance to bask in the glow of your honesty, your openness, your vulnerability, and all of the discovery work that you've done for yourself, because that work impacts the people around you more than you know. Well, thank you so much. I just want to say part of the reason that you and I have such a connection is because you've done the same for me. From the first dinner party that you came to at my house, you brought so much of yourself and you and your mom's story. And also just the insight that I feel like you've gathered through your career and how much you listen and read and talk to other people. And you share that so much with those around you. Obviously you're doing that first and foremost through this podcast. It's wonderful. And I think you've got such a gift for connection. I can understand why this has been a pillar for you. So I was just honored to be asked to be here and I can't wait to hear more about the connection that you're going to foster through the podcast. Thank you, Maria. That's it for today's conversation. Thank you so much for listening and connecting with us. If you liked the podcast, please subscribe and review. We'll be back next week with another impactful connection. Until then, be kind.